This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. So it was a really, really bad day for the Florida governor yesterday as he went up to Washington, D.C. And of course, you know, because we're in Florida and we see Ron DeSantis through the eyes of a very satisfied public, um, we like what he's done since he's become the governor. We don't understand that the rest of the country is far less impressed with him, which is what I've been trying to tell you all for the last uh, five, six months, he does not resonate well yet in the rest of the country. And the fact that he doesn't resonate in Washington is significant because Ron DeSantis was a congressman. He was part of the Tea Party Coalition. I helped him get elected. We fought for him. He was a great congressman, as a matter of fact, a fighter. And when he decided he was gonna run for, I believe at the time it was uh, Marco Rubio's senatorial seat, I discouraged him and said, you're a fighter, stay in the House. That's where the fighting happens. The Senate is a deliberative body. It's where they sit around and they grow old, like Mitch McConnell and all the rest of them. And that's not for you. And uh, I don't know that he paid any attention to me. He never does. And then he decided to run uh, for the governor's mansion. And I, you know, I take full responsibility. I said I don't think he's going to be a great governor. I'd rather he stay in Congress. And everybody told me that they, he would prove me wrong. And he did. He did turn out to be a very, very good governor, which is all fine and dandy. But that doesn't make you ready for the presidency. He's a young man. He's thin-skinned. Even though it looks like he stands up, it's easy to stand up to the Miami Herald and the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel. It's not quite that easy to stand up to the Washington Post and the New York Times. And it's definitely not that easy to stand up to the leadership of the Democratic Party, which is what he'd have to face in a presidential election. Not only that, I don't think the RNC is behind him. I can tell you right now, I don't get any feeling when I look at the missives that keep coming from Ronna McDaniel and all the other bigwigs in the Republican National Committee. I don't hear much about Governor DeSantis, and that's the uh, kiss of death. He, he is uh, a culture warrior, which is fine with me, but I don't know that that's going to help him in the primary because Donald Trump is the ultimate culture warrior. So you go up against you know someone who does what you do only better, you don't win. So he went up to the nation's capital yesterday and his whole intent, I'm sure, was to prove that he had you know some, some merit in the eyes of the establishment. And that's not what happened. This early shine that he had, I told everybody at the beginning, he peaked too early. And now the only people who are going to support him are the people who just don't want Donald Trump. And their numbers are, you know, sort of diminishing. You're looking at all the Republicans in the Florida delegation that have come out for him, Byron Donalds, uh, Brian Mast, 
uh, Greg Stubbe. I mean, all of the heavy hitter conservatives are coming out for Donald Trump uh, early on. They don't have to take a position yet. We don't even know who the candidate's going to be. We only have Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Asa Hutchinson, and Donald Trump. That's all that's in there so far. And yet people are coming out and supporting and endorsing Donald Trump. And there's a reason. And, and, and I can tell you what the reason is. Everybody wants to be on the winning team. That's all. Um, and he has stayed out of this race for a long time, was waiting for the legislative session to end, which is in about two weeks, I think. Uh, the Florida legislative session will end. And guess what? Donald Trump knows the timeline as well as anybody. And what he did was he picked up his speed, consolidated his support, and basically now has knocked Ron DeSantis off of his uh, perch here in the state of Florida. And if he's not going to be the top candidate in the state of Florida, you can forget him going on to get any kind of uh, national recognition around the country for, for any reason. That's all. And these packs that they're both now going after each other, making it look like they're competitive, you know, they will run out of money. The donors are backing away from Ron DeSantis. I heard from a donor just this week, a very big donor, who was trying to convince me that I should get behind, um, you know, Ron DeSantis. Did I have any problems with Ron DeSantis? And I said, that's not the issue. I'm a supporter of Donald Trump. I'm not anti-Ron DeSantis. I'm just pro-Donald Trump. And he said to me, well, you know, I, I understood your position and I was willing to tolerate it. He goes, but then the six-week abortion ban, that kind of just dried up my donors. Okay. You know, this is the discussion I had with my friend Fane Lozman yesterday. Fane and I were on the telephone for a long time. I don't talk on the telephone for more than 10 minutes, and somehow he managed to keep me on there 35 or 40 minutes yesterday. So I invited him into the studio. I'm in Palm Beach in the studio with my dear friend Fane Lozman, of course, of Supreme Court fame. I don't even know if any other uh, description of him is necessary, but I'll provide it anyway. He's one of these tech geniuses who, long before the rest of us could ca catch on, had made his fortune in the tech industry doing something that I don't understand how you do it, but he figured it out. He was in a helicopter in the Marines or whatever. Were you, what, what branch of the service were you I'm even in? The Marine in? Corps. In the Marine Corps. He's a helicopter pilot, and he notices one day that he doesn't really have to swivel his head, and he can look at all of the screens that are in front of him. And so geniuses don't just experience things. They try to figure out, how do I take this and expand it and maybe make a million dollars doing that? And he figured that out, Right. Is that a good description of, of how you Pretty did it? Pretty good, except I flew a tack jets. And it, okay, whatever. And it was <laughs> trying, to, trying to take the visual absorption of information when you land on an aircraft carrier and try to make it more efficient to absorb visual information off of a trading screen. So just like I said, we don't understand what he's talking about, yeah. but it sounds really impressive, right? And what he did was he converted that kind of technology into a trading um, uh, platform at the right. Chicago Mercantile, right? It was... It led to the largest uh, electronic stock exchange uh, using some of that software as far as – it's pretty complicated, as you said. Right. It's complicated, but that's the kind of right. mind that he has. And so when I first encountered Fane, and I, I do a little bit of background for the listeners who may not have been here 12 years ago when this all began um, – I was reading an article one day where they told me that the city of Riviera Beach 
was harassing this man who simply was docking his uh, floating home at a marina and he was fighting back. And you know me, I love a good story and I love a good um, a good warrior for any cause. It doesn't even have to be my cause. I didn't know any. I didn't know a thing about floating homes. I didn't know a thing about Fane Lozman. I didn't know what he did or what he had done. I didn't know if he was a rich guy, a poor guy. I didn't know anything about him. But I really liked the fact that he was standing up to this city that I knew was so corrupt. I'm sitting in it right now, virtually Riviera Beach, and it, it is like it is still the most corrupt city in South Florida. It should be like. You know, West Palm Beach, it's got a port. It's got oceanfront. I mean, this this should be like a paradise. And instead, it's a nightmare filled with politicians who raped and robbed the constituents who lived in abject poverty right in the middle of, uh, you know, one of the seats of wealth in the country. I mean, the most lucrative uh, zip code is adjacent to Riviera Beach. So why would it suffer this way? So when I heard that this guy was challenging them, I said, I need to find out more. And I reached out to him on Facebook in the days when I actually did Facebook. And of course, what was happening was the city of Riviera Beach was going to convert the marina. Tell, Tell the story just for those who haven't heard it. Yeah, basically, the marina had been donated in perpetuity to the public, a wealthy benefactor back in the early 1900s had given it to the city and said, let's have this for the public. Mm-hmm. And Riviera Beach, the, some of the corrupt politicians said there said, no, we're going to privatize the marina. Well, if you privatize, they would have to go back to his heirs. Mm-hmm. They should get it back. But no, we're just going to privatize it. And we're going to turn it into a mega yacht marina. And all the homes around there, those people can move to Pahokee. That's what the, <laughs> that's what the mayor said. He yeah. said, he said, Poor people, middle-class people, shouldn't be living near the valuable waterfront, even though their parents and grandparents built mm-hmm. built that stuff. Mm-hmm. So f- they were trying to eminent domain that, and Governor Jeb Bush, he was getting ready to sign Florida's anti-eminent domain bill. And the day before he signed it, they said, sorry, we signed a development agreement. We're going to eminent domain 2,200 homes, take the marina, and build a $2.4 billion redevelopment plan. Mm-hmm. I went in to buy some seashells, and this woman was crying. She said, I've had this seashell store in our family for 50 years. They're going to take it away from me. I said, they're going to take that away from me. They're also going to take away where I'm currently living in my floating home. I go, let's challenge that. They didn't give reasonable notice of the meeting. By the time when we win, they'd have to redo the meeting, and Governor Bush had already signed the eminent domain bill. So we filed a lawsuit. We challenged it, and Riviera Beach, Governor Bush sent down some investigators from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and all hell started breaking down the media. And they said they had a meeting behind closed doors. And in that meeting, we have a transmit that said they were going to intimidate me. Mm-hmm. They hired a private investigator to follow me around. They're going to do whatever they could to try to run me out of town. And they initially tried to evict my floating home, saying I had a dangerous dog. I had a 10-pound dog. <laughs> a little tiny My dog. dog might bite somebody, they said. Oh. we got to evict you. <laughs> it went to a jury trial. I represented myself. The jury laughed about it. They found that's, that's nonsense. Mm-hmm. Then they took my rent check that I paid every month and they held it and didn't cash it. And then they marched into federal court in Fort Lauderdale before judge, District Judge Demetriola and said, I hadn't paid my rent. They had a valid maritime lien to arrest my floating home. Three U.S. Marshals came to my home, towed it to Miami by the High Life Fronton and let it rot away. Yeah, not and an easy thing to tow a floating home, by the way. It took a couple of days. Anyway, when you read that story about s- stealing my home, mm-hmm. 
You I know, was and this, incensed. And you were incensed, and you reached out to me and said, we got to tell your story. And over the last, uh, you know, for more than a decade, mm-hmm. we've been telling the story. Joyce came to my first Supreme Court case, yep. and then she came to my second Supreme Court case. I am the only person in modern history to go to the Supreme Court twice. And prevail. And Well, with two different questions presented and yeah. prevail. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and he's headed there a third time. We'll talk about that in a little while. But right. uh, it's just, it's been an amazing journey. And one of the things that I have learned is that there still are people who understand that government in this context, in, in the United States of America, they work for us. And it is a bottom-up uh, pyramid, unlike you know, an authoritarian government or communism or even socialism or any of these other forms of government, um, the people are supposed to control what happens. And we're a nation of laws. And when we started watching how they were manipulating the law, particularly in the case of taking his home. And by the way, um, for those of you who don't know, they actually sunk his floating home at one point. Well, what they did is, is they took it to Miami. Mm-hmm. And then the judge ordered it sold at auction. I said, don't do that. We're filing an appeal. We're going to win the appeal. He goes, nope. He didn't like my attitude because he was a Democrat. And I had said something positive about Governor Bush, and he yelled at me in open court. Yeah. I'll never forget that screaming at me. I go, I still think Governor Bush is a great guy. Mm -hmm. And um, he ordered my home sold at auction. The city of Riviera Beach went to the courthouse steps, outbid the public that attended, and then vindictively destroyed my home at taxpayers' expense. So instead of taking the money that the public wanted to buy it and put in the general fund, they outbid the public and then spent $6,900 to destroy it and mocked me about it ever since. Oh, yeah. Well, they shouldn't have done that because that's when he decided he was going to find the right kind of representation and go take this case to the Supreme Court. Yeah. i got to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll tell you a little bit more about that experience of going up to the Supreme Court, because in all the years that I've covered the court and all of the opinions that I've read and studied, all of the attorneys who helped me make sense of them, I never had had the experience of being there. And uh, and every justice that I ever would have wanted to have seen was still there. So it was a, it was an, a monumental opportunity. And when we come back, I'll tell you all about it. Don't forget to take the... Um, 850 app, put it on your phone. That way you can join in on our contest. If you don't want to have an app on your phone, some people are a little reluctant to do that, go to the website, 850wftl.com, and enter to win. We're giving away a four-pack of tickets to SunFest, which is May 5th through the 7th. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And if you want to see some awesome music on the waterfront, this is the way to get your free tickets, a four-pack. 
I'm going to take a quick break and then we'll be right Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Right back. So essentially, when I first connected with Fane Lozman, uh, I kept telling people about the case, and everybody kept telling me, like, come on, you know, nobody gets to go to the Supreme Court, never mind will prevail on a case that's going up against a municipality. I mean, it wasn't like Fain was just, you know, doing some sort of general lawsuit that he wanted the Supreme Court to weigh in on the constitutionality of. He was challenging the city of Riviera Beach. And uh, everybody told me, oh, you know, don't put too much store in it. And then I found out who he went to to get his uh, legal advice from. So tell him about, uh, of course, the school my daughter was at the time attending, she was in the medical school, and you went to the legal side of uh, Stanford, right? Right. I had done a Google search for who's one of the, who was the top young Supreme Court advocate, and mm-hmm. it was a Stanford Law School professor, Jeffrey Fisher. Mm-hmm. And I sent him an email. Jeff Fisher had argued, well, now he's argued about 45 cases. At that time, he argued about 20, but one of them was the Exxon Valdez case. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to him. I said, it's not quite the Exxon Valdez case, but it's an interesting case that has, will have an impact on um, floating structures to include oil platforms, floating homes, casino boats. Uh, there's all kinds of floating infrastructure. And I said, this is the case I'd like you to look at. Mm-hmm. And he took, you know, within a short, you know, a few hours, he came back and said, yeah, I'll represent you. Mm-hmm. So that was very exciting. And then, of course, I call my son, the lawyer, and said, what do you think about this case? And he goes, you don't prevail in a case like that, but it'll be interesting to watch. Uh, A couple of weeks later, or a couple of months later, actually, I got a phone call from him. He said, that Lozman friend of yours, he might prevail. And I said, well, what what made you change your mind? He said, well, my firm is doing an amicus brief, and we don't do that unless we're pretty sure. Right. His firm had three former Supreme Court law clerks write the amicus brief. And yeah, one Munger, Tolson, clerked, Olson. Yeah, one of them clerked for Justice Ginsburg. So that brought a lot of credibility mm-hmm. to my case. And uh, remember, the Supreme Court only takes eight per thousand petitions. So That's for every right. thousand people that ask the Supreme Court to take their case, they take eight. Mm-hmm. So it's very, you got to have a really quality case and a quality team to squeeze into the eight. And out of those eight, there's only six, six of the eight win. So right. I've been in that eight twice and I've been in the six twice. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to go up there, and it was uh, an experience I'll never forget. I mean, first and foremost, just to be in the chambers when you're looking at the giants um, that you've only reported on and read about and seen in black robes and photographs before that. And it it was incomparable because, first and foremost, you know, I got to verify that things I had been reading for years were actually true. Clarence Thomas never asked a question. He would whisper a question to Justice Scalia, yeah. who would then ask the question. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was so perceptive and asked such good questions. And the level of humor 
that we saw, because this was a, a strange case at best. I mean, you know, uh, one of the justices, I think it was, um, I can't even remember who it was now, but I think it was a liberal, Breyer or somebody, you know, said, well, like, is Pinocchio a floating structure? And, you know, how would yeah, you... I mean, there was some, you know, the I was confident I won the case when the uh, city's attorney told the chief justice that they considered a raft in a pool. right. Came under federal admiralty law. And I said, once you said that, it was over. Forget about it. And then Justice Kagan said, really? <laughs> well, what about an inner tube? And they go, well, most of the parts of the person will be underwater in the inner tube. And he goes, what about if I pay some pennies on the inner tube? It's transporting things because the Court of Appeals in Atlanta, the 11th Circuit, had said that anything is a floating structure, including three men in a wash tub and Joan in the whale. That's right. And when Justice Breyer wrote the opinion, he mocked them. He said, don't be confused, 11th Circuit, mm-hmm. a floating dishpan, uh, a swimming platform, and Pinocchio while in the whale, even though they may float, that's not a vessel under federal admiralty law, so don't make that mistake. People yeah. around the country talked about how harsh the Supreme Court hammered them because there had been other things that had floated Back in the 1800s, they said weren't vessels, and this 11th Circuit just ignored prior mm-hmm. Supreme Court precedent, and the appellate court should not be doing that. That's right. And so then, of course, you know, you would think that that's the end of the story and that Fain would now be able to recoup his expenses for the legal cases that the city of Riviera Beach put him through, not to mention I can't imagine how much the taxpayers had to pay for the representation that the city of Riviera Beach had to provide, and yet it wasn't over yet, was it? No, I mean, we talk about the arrest of my floating home. I've been arrested five times in Riviera Beach. (laughs) That's right. You know, and hauled up to a lockup, you know, for most of them. So, I mean, it's, they they just couldn't let it go. And, And one of the arrests was when I was making public comments. They didn't like what I had to say, and they arrested me and dragged me out of there. That was the second case. Mm-hmm. that I was speaking in a normal voice. As a matter of fact, that video is actually on the U.S. Supreme Court website under media, and that's pretty rare that they put up a, a video clip, but that will be up there until you know, the end of that end of time as far as that court's concerned. But basically, everybody saw the video. It's like, you have a right to free speech. Yeah. And then when we went to challenge that, it was like, oh, well, there was probable cause, so you can't file a First Amendment retaliatory arrest case. And I go, where's the probable cause? They go, well, let's look in the statute book. The, the grounds I was arrested for, trespassing, resisting arrest, the judge looked at that. He goes, that's not what it is. And that a trial six years later, he goes, well, you may have been getting ready to disturb the meeting, so that's probable cause. I go, that makes no sense, Your <laughs> Honor. Right. And that's what took the case up to the Supreme Court is – is probable cause an absolute bar to First Amendment retaliatory arrest case. And that was just the retaliation, the retaliation of destroying my floating home, the retaliation of arresting me when I'm just speaking, speaking. in a normal tone. Mm-hmm. And this, that went back to the Supreme Court because there was a conflict on that, you know. Mm-hmm. So, well, and I remember when you called me and said, I'm doing it, I'm going, I'm taking this to the Supreme Court. And I said to you, but I'm not so clear that that's such a First Amendment fight. And uh, and it was proven to be exactly that. And the court was very clear in their opinion about that. And sometimes those opinions are, are confusing, and that one wasn't. Exactly, because look at it this way. There are public speakers that are yanked out of school board meetings, yeah. thrown out of meetings. You know, the, these politicians who work for us, if you criticize them, they use police powers to target you at the meeting and get you arrested. They send code enforcement. They do all these retaliatory things. How do you fight back? 
And that's what basically the Supreme Court sent a message that it's not an absolute bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if they have probable cause. I mean, that, that, look at journalists. Hundreds of journalists get arrested a year when they go to cover an event, especially photojournalists, and the cops say, move. Mm-hmm. You're jaywalking. Right. Or you're getting ready to jaywalk, so we're going to seize you. By the time they let them go, the event is over. So the, um, the journalists wrote 25 of the major media organizations wrote an amicus brief for me in that case saying, hey, it's not only in public meetings. It's in the media we're being targeted based on our right, freedom of the press, to take photographs of protests and what have you. So, Well, you are certainly on the cutting edge of the First Amendment uh, battles that are now being waged on a daily basis all over this country and are pretty frightening to me. I mean, um, uh, somebody asked me if, uh, last night at this meeting I was speaking at when I was talking about um, the uh, Musk interviews that have been going on the last couple of days with Tucker Carlson over the issue of freedom of speech. And and it's it's amazing to me that this guy, much like Fain himself, decided it was worth the fight. It didn't matter to, to, uh, to Elon Musk, who, by the way, now admits he paid twice what Twitter was worth. Now, when you're talking billions of dollars, that's a whole lot of money. And I remember saying to Fain, after the first case, because I knew it was you know expensive to, to do what he did, and he says to me, I'm going to do it again. And I go, but Fain, is it worth it? And he didn't bat an eye. He didn't hesitate for a moment. And he said, this is bigger than me. It's bigger than my being hauled off to jail. This is about America's right to speak out, especially against their government. We're supposed to be allowed to redress our government with our grievances. And we're not supposed to be uh, stymied by you know, municipalities or even uh, state uh, legislatures. So, you know, I, I admire that and I, I watch carefully. Uh, last night, uh, he revealed, Elon Musk revealed that not just American intelligence gathering organizations like the FBI and the CIA and, and, and Homeland Security, not only they were being given access to my direct messages on Twitter. But other governments from other countries were given direct access to DMs between two citizens of America. Um, and cases were being built with that information. And that's pretty scary stuff. If guys like Musk and guys like Fane Lozman don't fight for us, how are we going to even know these things are happening? I would have never known uh, what a, a threat it was to my uh, freedom of speech if you had not taken on that case. And you remember in the beginning, I was trying to talk you out of it. I know you did. <clears throat> yeah. But sometimes, you know, you just got to do what's right. We got to take a break. That would be right. And we'll be back in just a moment. So stay right where you are. You are listening to The Joyce Kaufman Show. My guest is Fane Lozman, and we will be back. So I'm back, and uh, I'm with the what, did the, what did the uh, New Times call you? They had given you a nickname that I loved. Crusader, the avenging angel. Avenging <clears throat> angel. That's right, yeah. and uh, and he has continued in that line, but it's not over yet. You see, two times at the Supreme Court wasn't enough for Fane Lozman. So now, he is launching another attack, which you said has to go through the circuit court. Tell us what you're doing. Basically, after I won my first uh, Supreme Court case, the floating home case, a woman read about me in the New York Times, and she said, "Hey." I have eight acres of property that I got from my father. She was in her 80s, and she said, I'd like you to have the property. I said, well, I can't 
I got to give you something for it. Right. So I, I gave her some money and I went to visit her. She lived up in the villages and she said, no one can ever screw with you again because you own the submerged land. The state had sold this property in 1924. They sold 311 acres and half of it was filled into the south and there's a couple hundred homes that have been built on it. And the this developer is not around filling the northern half, but mm-hmm. I brought my floating home up there. <clears throat> my second floating home from Miami, up there a short time, some guys went out and sunk it. Then I built a floating container home on concrete floats. They try to damage that, but you know, concrete's a tough thing to, yeah, to right. try to sink. Anyway, they put a floating home, uh, they passed an ordinance, you can't have a floating home in the city of Riviera Beach anywhere, including private property. And then this lady who I had filed an ethics complaint, Julia Botel, where she was running a business out of her office and using city resources. Well, Governor DeSantis entered an executive order sanctioning and reprimanding her. And once he did that, this woman went on the warpath. Mm-hmm. She put the floating home prohibition in. She downzoned the property. She did all these things where she took away the economic use of the property. It has no value. What was her position? I mean, what, how did she, could she do these things? She, instead of thinking that she's one of five commissioners, commissioners they mm-hmm. had fired the city manager, Jonathan Evans. And she made a big push to bring him back. And when she brought him back, Evans was her little puppet. And she's the, basically the woman that runs Riviera Beach, this hotel. And everybody is scared to death of her. So she would have the, you know, like when we built the fence, she had some cop go down there and threaten to arrest the people, even though we had a permit to build a fence on the lot. And then she said, she told the people across the street, well, he shouldn't have a fence. And they tore the fence down, you know, because they just like, you know, going on there our property, says. cutting our trees, pretending it's a private beach, which it isn't. But anyway, so they took away the development rights. My floating container home now is in North Palm Beach, a few feet west of Riviera Beach. And it's been out there for a year because District Judge Middlebrooks ordered that it could be put there. Okay. But it's not in the city of Riviera Beach. So we filed a taking case saying you've taken away the development. You, you know, it has no value. You took away the development rights. You took away the use. We were living on it. We can't get our mail. We can't get electric. We had electric. They took that away revoked our permit. So we filed a taking case under Lucas. Lucas is the famous takes case that Justice Scalia wrote the opinion on. Right. I went and hired Ian Samuel, who clerked for Justice Scalia in 2012 when you came to the Supreme Court. Right. And he, he had interviewed me on his podcast, First Mondays, mm-hmm. where he kept talking about my case and the second case. So we filed a taking case and things were going along. But in the back of my mind, I said, district courts, they don't like trying cases. They like finding a reason to dismiss yeah, them, dismiss get rid it. of them, mm-hmm. and then you have to go to the appellate court and bring it. But, but this was a really very solid case. And it was dismissed. The, 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 the holding was basically, well, even though if they took away what you could do with it, it has some residual value. So that. What's the residual taking. value? It, you it, can't develop it. Right. It doesn't matter what the property is worth. It has right. to have an economically viable use. And we had that use. Right. And the point is that the, the, the Lucas opinion that Justice Scalia authored, that's being confused around the country. Just like, you know, the floating home case. A floating home came under state law in California. A floating home came under federal law in, this, you know, in Florida. So when you have these, this confusion... 
that's when the Supreme Court gets involved. Mm -hmm. So we have to go back to the Court of Appeals in Atlanta. We filed an appeal. It's possible the appellate court may kick it back for trial. But if they don't, we have a wonderful circuit split on Lucas. And we got the, the... the, the man we have, you know, one of Justice the Scalia's clerks. There who would, for the, he would the file the complaint and say, it. "This is an affront to what Justice Scalia wrote." So, one way or the other, it would eventually get there. If it comes back for trial, the loser at trial will appeal back to Atlanta, and that loser will appeal to the Supreme Court that time. So, it's just a function: when will it get to the Supreme Court? This go round, or if it comes well, back next. and gets tried? But you're talking five, six, seven years down the road. I know. And I mean, I have to ask you this question, not that I don't know the answer to it, but for the listeners who may not know the answer, why are you doing this? I mean, you don't need to do this. It's for the principle, because if you, if you don't make a stand for private property rights, the government would just come take your property. And they do it all over the place. All the time. <coughs> Excuse me. They take, they take private property. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, just like they took my floating home and destroyed it, I don't want somebody to lose their house, to mm-hmm. lose their land. In a, in a regulatory deal. If you want to take somebody's property, eminent domain it at the highest and best use. Mm-hmm. They don't want to do that. They don't want to pay anything for it and take it. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of landowners in these submerged, they, they weren't submerged lands, by the way. They were dry, you know, pretty much dry land when the state sold them in 1924. The, how did you, they end up submerged? Well, I'll tell you how. Yeah. And there's photographs of it. They went and dug a giant trench through my eight acres, about 125 feet wide, and it was 25 feet deep. And they took all that material and built the road, built A1A, widened and raised A1A. And then since over the last 80 years, there's been erosion into that trench. Mm -hmm. So most of my property is like ankle deep water, Mm -hmm. calf deep water. It's not like you're driving a boat through those waters. That was my argument against the U.S. government. Those are not navigable water. You can't use those for commerce. The intercoastal waterway that they go up with the big boats, that's mm-hmm. eight-tenths of a mile away. This is in a little cove. Right. So ultimately, I may fight that case out against the U.S. government because that's kind of basically been told. But now my floating home is being vandalized and, you know, 800 feet off my private beach in North Palm Beach. So... And and the the police don't intervene when there's vandalization of of the, the property. The police are happy about it. Oh, they it's might like, be doing great. it for that. Matter. They stole your stuff. Yeah. The police came by. You you interviewed Dan Taylor, my neighbor. Right. He's been fighting out his property since 1967. His right. father started and he took over. The police came to him and said, "You shouldn't come to your property and visit it because you're a troublemaker." <laughs> okay. Like when you hear that kind of stuff, yeah. you get. Dan Taylor on again soon, and he, and he'll tell the unbelievable story of how they've been torturing him. He went and got a permit from the Army Corps and DEP to build a dock, and he had a city permit, and he was starting construction of the dock, and Botel came in and got his permit revoked for the dock, and he's been fighting that out for the last couple of years. And just vindictive. I mean, it's not as though she's defending the environment or anything. No, it's vindictive. Mm-hmm. She's a very vindictive woman. She's a white woman up there who has made the most racist remarks about prior counsel. She just thinks she thinks she's a little dictator. Mm. And at the end of the day, she's going to go down. Well, she, she, She's going to be destroyed politically because they try to recall her. She went and had the last summer, she, she had the bars on uh, the Ocean Mall on Singer Island tell them to shut down and not catered to the black residents who were having a function. They had rented the beach over there for a function. 
And she had coordinated that. And when they got all the detail, there was really an uprising on the west side. And they went, got all the signatures to recall her. And then her buddy, our, our corrupt Palm Beach supervisor of election, she goes, oh, well, you didn't put Palm Beach County on the form. Oh. So I'm rejecting all 3,000 signatures. And they go, where is Riviera Beach located? It's not located in New York. No. It's located in Palm Beach County. So that's because they didn't put Palm Beach County rejecting all the signatures. So that's being right. fought out in court. But those two are little... That's her corrupt cohort there yeah. in the supervisor uh, listen, elections office. It is. It's really obscene, and one of the reasons, again, that I say there's there's still a lot of work that needs to be done here in Florida, which is why I'd like our governor to remain our governor because somebody has to pay attention to these little fiefdoms that exist all across the state. I mean, you're familiar with Riviera Beach because you were, you know, that that's where your problems began. But I've been living in Broward County, Florida for 45 years, yeah. and it's a Democratic stronghold. It's a fiefdom. Um, uh, citizens are not allowed to have any kind of sway over the simplest things. Like I live in a community where um, it's predominantly Democrats, predominantly older Democrats, and they'll walk around my community and campaign for Democratic candidates. But if I dare to get a list from the Republican National uh, or the RPOF, the Republican Party of Florida, that tells me which people who live in my community are actually registered Republicans, and then I choose to go knock on their door and say, I hope you'll support this candidate, I get sanctioned for canvassing. There's no law, not in my homeowner's uh, you know, documents either, that says I cannot go up to people who I know agree with me and share my opinions with them. And, and the people who want to sanction us and shut down the club that I spoke at last night, those people walk around our community with uh, candidates and, and seated elected officials as if there were you know, no problem in what they do just not allowed to fight back if you're on the other side. So I get it. Um, we just don't have a Fane Lozman in Broward County who's willing to keep fighting this fight. And, and a Governor Bush. Let's get real. Governor Bush sent the Florida Department of Law Enforcement when they try to True that. play that game. So, I mean, Governor DeSantis, I think he just doesn't have a lot of time if he's, well, he's not paying attention around the country yeah. to do that. And don't forget, you had the greatest assistant U.S. attorney ever, John Kastronakis, and he was responsible for cleaning up all the corruption in the Palm Beach County Commission in West Palm. That's and you, true. You look at Maslati, Liberti, Newell, Excellent, McCarty, all those guys, and that one girl went down because of what Kastronakis Night. did. And That's we just true. haven't run into another Jeb Bush and Kastronakis who are tough on corruption like those – like those men were. Yeah, well, that, that that's uh, that's not happening anytime soon. Although Palm Beach has some hope. I mean, there's actually you know, uh, they're purple now instead of uh, blue. But you know, where I am in Broward, it's just very very difficult. You, you got a Democratic state attorney, Ehrenberg, and he's yeah. another corrupt dirtbag. Yeah, that, that's for another show. Right. What's going on with him? And remember, the Miami Herald and Palm Beach Post are trying to get those transcripts. They filed a lawsuit to get the transcripts in that Straub case. And that's a whole interesting show yeah. to talk about. Yeah, uh, we've got plenty to talk about. Anyway, let me um, get ready for this final break in this hour. I do want to remind everybody that coming up at 1 o'clock is Dan Bongino. At 4 o'clock is Ben Shapiro. At 6 o'clock, the WPTV News, then Bill O'Reilly, and then um, Joyce's uh, Thought of the Day. I caught it the other day. I was really pleased to hear it. And, uh, and then, of course... Uh, 
uh, the, the morning crew will be back tomorrow morning. I have one sec- uh, segment left, so please stay right where you are. I'll be right back. All right, so, uh, you know, I, I have a, a guy in the studio, Fane Lozman, who really does understand a lot about technology and a lot about politics. And, you know, I just, I, I feel compelled, since it's really bothering me a lot, to ask you what you think um, is the biggest threat from artificial intelligence. And I don't mean, you know, is it going to be writing uh, term papers for high school kids? Like, how far do you think... Um, we are away from a sentient AI. Well, I think the immediate problem that people are going to face is they make these these deep fakes. They take oh yeah, they take your image, your face, and they put it on somebody else's body, or and 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 make your voice like like you were doing something that never happened. It's just totally, mm-hmm. it's just totally created. Yeah, there's one of Trump and Joe Rogan that's mind-boggling. It right. looks so like them. You know, they show, you know, a politician running for office and they have him, you know, in front of a gas pump, you know, using racial slurs and cursing somebody out that just never happened. And they'll spread it out. There would be a viral mm-hmm. moment. And they're like, oh, we can't vote for that person because look at all these horrible things. They said they would destroy people through AI. And that's happening now. So mm-hmm. that, that's my number one concern is going to taint the political process because oh, you yeah. have some, you know, guy who goes to church and has three kids and a wife and all of a sudden you have this rant at a gas pump mm-hmm. that's all made from AI but people won't understand that it's they go that's just that's the real deal he's like well I didn't do that yeah sure look at the video the vi- you yeah, know, picture tells a right. thousand words so that would be my initial thing they're going to use that to start destroying to people. slander and destroy people yeah exactly mm-hmm. now when it comes to destroying society itself where the machines eventually win I think Musk is right they, yeah. they will eventually win, and you're going to have a lot of isolation. I think it's going to be the point where people are going to be afraid to go. They're target people. They, like the cops now target people. Like, like there was a, a, a guy who was fighting the city. Every time he leaves his driveway, they give him a, a ticket. Right. You know, they, they screw with him. I, I think you're going to have people that could fight things out that are going to be isolated. I think society is going to be isolated a lot, and then AI is going to will, will come in and fill those gaps and it, oh, it's just it's horrifying to think what, what yeah. the future is. Society as we know it will change, and Musk is right on target. This is the biggest threat to democracy since we were formed in 1776, in my mind. Yeah, and see, I have sort of a very superficial understanding of these things, and so what, what, and what humans do, or at least this human does, is I say, well, it'll be okay. Uh, I don't have to understand it because the people who understand it won't allow that to happen. But what he pointed out was, oh, no, no, the people who understand it want it to happen. Exactly. They're orchestrating it to happen. Exactly. And that's kind of scary because, as I said before, the idea that they're tracking my direct messages and that they have been literally spying on American citizens um, with the imprimatur of the executive branch, whether it's this one or the previous one, it's pretty scary to me. I mean, I, I feel like um, you'd almost welcome back a, a, a Hoover. You know, J. Edgar, I knew what he was doing. I mean, he was obvious about what he was doing. But now we've been told everything is okay over there at the FBI. And then we see the James Comeys and all of these characters coming out of the woodworks. And what they're doing is really, really destroying lives. What does liberty mean? Liberty means a right to privacy. Mm-hmm. Liberty means a right to a free right to press. property. 
Liberty means the right to private property. These liberties that this country was built on, they are being taken away. They've been taken away. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they use the excuse oh, after, after 9-11, like, oh, we have to start monitoring things. Every phone call, cell phone, email goes through that big NSA building. That's uh, right. I don't know where it is. And they all crunch it down and sift it out. Well, they can sift it out. That has nothing to do with terrorism. You know, Al-Qaeda is not that big. Al-Qaeda has pretty much been destroyed. But that operation is still going, mm -hmm. gathering that information, then run that through an AI system, and then... All bets are off. You know, it, it, people don't understand, understand it. Like, I think you made a comment earlier. Well, you'll be long gone before AI really hits it. But what about your grandkids that you oh, love so much? Yeah. What, yeah. what life are they going to have? AI is the story of this century. Yeah. Not 9-11. It's AI in my mind. Yeah. And I, and I have to agree. And the more I delve into it and the more I see, um, you know, the people that are really into it. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of, I think today there was a story about Google wanting so badly to be at the forefront of AI that they have uh, tolerated a lot of ethical lapses and the employees are starting to turn. And, you know, the, this guy Bard, who is uh, the um, AI chatbot, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm calling him like he's a person, but it's an AI chatbot, um, is a pathological liar. But what is, the, the big thing is, will it, you know, they always said robots are going to take over mm. you know, and, and get rid of the American worker. I think AI might. is going to destroy the workforce because you because AI combined with robotics, mm -hmm. you know, it's going to decimate you know the legal profession. It's going to decimate a lot of things. AI will do it better than a person That's can. That's right. What are all these people going to do just drifting around? I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's pretty. It's scary. a much bigger problem than people think it is. Elon Musk is right on target, and he's a savant. You know, he changed. Yeah. Autom automation. He changed the space race. Yeah, he did. They should listen to what he has to say. I think they're starting to. And uh, and like you, he doesn't care what they say about him either, which is pretty uh, good. And like Donald Trump. I thank you for your time this time until next time. And my plan is to be back here at noon tomorrow, if it be his will and he delays his coming. Remember what lies behind us and what lies ahead of us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So wherever you are, just be yourself. Everybody else is taken. Thank you to my guest, Fane Lozman. Thank you to my producer, Sharina. And uh, most of all, thank you for listening. I appreciate all the people who turned out last night to see me at that speaking engagement. Um, you guys keep me pumped up, and, and, that, and that's a good thing. I, I never want to grow weary of fighting the good fight. I use people like Fane to keep me encouraged because they'll go the distance. May God bless you, and may God bless the United States of America. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.